Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks for tuning in. Listen, I don't need to go on some long diatribe about the upcoming episode. All I need to do is tell you the title of the book that was written by our guest. The book is called The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. Our guest this week is Paul Bloom. And Paul is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He is also a professor emeritus of psychology at Yale University. He studies how children and adults make sense of the world, with special focus on pleasure, morality, religion, fiction, and art. He's the past president of the Society for Philosophy and Psychology. He's written for multiple places and is the author of six books. Look. This is a discussion about some of the deepest, most intricate, fascinating topics on the planet. So if you don't enjoy this one, I frankly don't know what you're doing here. Let us know what you think. Reach out, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. If you like discussions like this, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast and join the crew of other smart people. And of course, tell a friend. I'd love for this episode to spread far and wide because I think it contains a lot of information and insight that could help everyone approach our time on this planet a little bit differently. So without further ado, I say we just jump in. Here is my discussion with Paul Bloom on his new book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. Enjoy. I've had a strained relationship with the science of happiness and you kick off your book kind of talking similarly. And so I wanted to start with this quote that I wrote down It said, if you want to get on stage and stay there, if you want money and fame, you are wise to offer solutions to life's problems, regardless of how strong the scientific data are. How do you think about the science of something like happiness now, knowing how hard it is to sift through different opinions on it? It's such a good place to start. You know, 
the science of happiness suffers problems that other fields don't. If you're interested in visual perception in a newborn or spatial navigation in a bat, well, you know, you, you, you present your data, you, there's always forces to make things interesting, but by and large, you could just talk about what you find. But for happiness, there's an enormous amount of pressure to tell people how to change their lives and make extravagant claims about what, what works. That's what ambitious people who want to have bestsellers do. That's what you, that gets you on stage for a TED talk. Um, Early in my book, I talk about an inspirational speaker I heard when I was at a conference. And this was the only time where the lawyers who go through the book said, I had to make it not so identifiably him because I, I don't want to get sued by this man who is very, very rich. Um, but he was an inspirational speaker, very loaded up with positive psychology and so much of what he said, just pure nonsense. <laughs> so so it, it is a feel of a lot of a lot of nonsense, a lot of overstated claims, a lot of lousy philosophy. Where, where they don't think their way through what a good life is. But as I also say in the book, um, there's some really good stuff there. Yeah. And, and I ended up, I started off as sort of a stranger to the field with a lot of uh, scorn for it. And then as I got into it and I read the literature and, you know, people like, uh, like Danny Kahneman, for instance, mm -hmm. who probably wouldn't call himself a positive psychologist or, um, or like, you know, Marty Seligman's work or, uh, you know, Dan Gilbert. And, and a lot of scholars who I really respect, my friend, Lori Santos, is, is, a, is a leader in the field. And, and I started thinking there's really good stuff here. And in the end, um, my book pushes against positive psychology in some ways, but I've come to respect a better work in it. Yeah. And that's what I liked about it, especially the approach you took. I mean, talking about the pleasures of suffering and the dichotomy between pain and pleasure, it's an interesting approach to it. I'm curious why that is the route you took into this field. How did you get to this idea of kind of balancing the, the yin and the yang of happiness, if you will? I started off because it was just a puzzle. I thought it was, and for the longest time, I thought it was really cool why some people sought out pain and suffering and difficulty. Everything from mundane things like eating spicy foods or going to hot baths and saunas to more interesting things like our fictional pleasures. Why do you go to a movie that makes you scream or cry? Such a great puzzle. Mm. Um, to BDSM or cutting or other activities. And, and, and I said, you know, it was a real puzzle here. And so when I originally started to write the book, that was my puzzle. And I was going to call it the pleasures of suffering. I'm going to talk about how, how from a pleasure standpoint, how the right sort of suffering could give you pleasure. And then as I started to work on the book, I started to realize there's all sorts of suffering that doesn't give you pleasure, but we seek it out anyway. And I'm mm. thinking here about things like raising a family, starting a business, large scale projects, going to war. And there, I think suffering isn't there to give you pleasure. It's there because it's part and parcel of meaningful pursuits. And so through that route, I began to kind of then ask the question, more general question, what do people want? And my answer is different than many of positive psychologists. I don't think people want pleasure exclusively, nor do they want happiness exclusively. They want a lot of things. And some of them involve suffering. Do you think that in that stew of what people want, meaning is at a perhaps the pinnacle of it? Because I, when you said the thing about families, I've got two little kids. I have this conversation daily with my wife. It's like, what are we doing? And then the next second, we talk about having more. It's that maddening. But I always go back to, I will never be upset about having kids or even having more. So I wonder, is it a sacrifice of momentary or even fairly drawn out suffering for meaning and purpose? Yeah. So having kids and having young kids is a wonderful case. I think that illustrates how complicated our motivations are because you know, if you have little kids, your life is in a certain direct sense, probably worse than somebody who was not a parent or you before you, you were a parent. You're, mm -hmm. you're probably a little bit sleep deprived. You're tired. You don't have enough tough time to do the stuff you were, you were doing. And I don't know you well, but I can imagine you before kids, you know, clubbing and sleeping in and reading whenever you wanted to working out and, and without a care in the world. And, Pretty much nailed it. <laughs> yeah. And, and now, and now, now your life is gone. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just constant struggle. So, but, but you don't look at it and say, boy, did I ever screw up? And, right. and parents very rarely do so. Parents usually are glad they're parents, even in the most awful of circumstances. 
And this suggests that there's some sort of multiple itches to scratch. And one itch is that itch you've been scratching before you were a parent, and you probably still scratch now, which is, you know, pleasure. You want to have a good time. It's a, it's a really hot day and a cool drink feels just right. It's, that's never going to go away. But there's also purpose. And, and having kids is, I think, purposeful and meaningful activity that draws us for different reasons. You ask where I put them on a hierarchy. And I, I actually don't. I think there's, there's a lot of people, um, my friend Scott Barry Kaufman, I think, likes to put things on a hierarchy and he would give you a different answer. But I think a good life contains a whole lot of things. And instead of um, putting them in a hierarchy, think of them as sort of segments of a pie. And some, one segment is you know, happy pleasure. Another is being a good person, morality. Maybe something else is spiritual for some people. And a big part for a lot of people is meaning and purpose. And, um, and people differ. There's these nice studies where you ask people about their lives. And some people say, well, I live a life of happiness. Meaning, no, not so much, really. And other people say, I live a life of meaning and purpose. Happiness, pleasure, not so much. And some people, and I think they're lucky, say, I got both. So, and, and so there's a certain balance. And people have to find their balance. And to some extent, my book is a defense of putting more meaning and purpose into the balance. But to some extent, it's a personal question how to distribute that. I was curious about the individuality of it. And if you dig into it, because, for example, the one that I have never understood is painful food. I've never understood that. When people say, let's have hot wings or let's put hot sauce on, from as early as I can remember, I thought that's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. You're taking perfectly good food and making it literally worse by pain. So how individualized is this idea of the need of pain as well as the way we define kind of pleasure? Right. So now we're talking about suffering as a route to pleasure. And you're exactly right, which is this is a case really where your mileage may vary. I, I give these examples and talks, and some people have no idea what I'm talking about. Why in the world would you want to eat spicy foods or wasabi? And well, for me, for instance, why in, I, I was camping with my young kids, and I have it's deprivation and suffering. And for me, it's exactly the wrong type. I hate it. I get nothing out of it. Why in the <laughs> why in the world would you ever leave your warm bed and your nice shower and HBO to go sit in the woods and get beat, eaten by animals? And you yeah. know. Um, but other people love it. Other people love it. And if the next question you ask this is the next one you should ask, well, what distinguishes the sorts of people who like spicy foods from those who like to cry at movies, from those who like rigorous exercises? And my answer is, I don't have the foggiest idea. There's <laughs> been there's been no good research on this question. Yeah. And the answers aren't always what you expect them to be. So, so for instance, there's a stereotype that men like horror movies more than women. But there's been studies on this, and the difference, if it exists, is very small. Right now, women are just as much fans as men are, as best we mm. know. Mm. Um, in some cases, there are sex differences. Um, for certain, certain masochistic rituals and religion, for instance, uh, are often more done by men than, than women. Um, but for the most, and, and there's also the generalization that people who score high in sort of what's called sensation seeking, you know, uh, are more prone to certain sorts of masochistic pleasures. Mm. But for the most part, we don't know why some people like some and why some people like others. That sensation seeking is fascinating because I think one of the traits I enjoy least about myself is the constant want for stimulation, right? Like I just don't relax well. One of the things I really was interested in this is why do I overcomplicate life and then say, I want it to be simpler? And that's one of the things when I think of, you know, suffering, that's almost created suffering. But I think meaning comes from it. Did you look into that when it comes to people overburdening themselves almost on purpose? Yeah, well, so, so there's a study I talk about early in the book by Rory Baumeister and his colleagues. And they ask people, basically, how, much ha how happy are you and how much meaning you have in your life? And then see people who have high happiness versus high meaning, um, how they describe their lives. And the answer about it is, is what you're saying, which is people with high meanings live lives of stress and difficulty and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And often they seek it out, they seek those out. And I think we seek them out for different ways. I think we get bored otherwise. You know, I tell this story. Can you, I, this isn't my story. This is a story by Alan Watts. I tell it at the end of the chapter. I'm, I'm, I'm with my partner. We're in Toronto, and we're about to watch Avengers Endgame. 
and they have a commercial before. And all of a sudden there's a voice saying, imagine you're in a dream. And I'm listening to this and I say, what the hell is this? This is, this is extraordinary. And it's a commercial for a bank or something, but, but I took down the words. I remembered the words I went to Google and it's actually a parable told by, by, by Alan Watts. And parable goes like this. This is to answer your question. It says, imagine you go to sleep one night and you find yourself in a lucid dream. You could dream whatever you want for 85 years of experience time. So you would have so much fun. Every possible pleasure you could imagine, you would give yourself. You wake up, the next night you go to sleep again, and boom, it's another lucid dream. But soon, he says, you just get bored. You get bored of all those pleasures. So you know what you would do? You would throw obstacles in front of yourself. You would make it harder and harder. You would make it so you're going to try to do something, but maybe you won't succeed. Maybe you fail, because otherwise it's boring. And and you'd, you'd accumulate difficulties and troubles and troubles. And the punchline is, how do you know you're not living that dream right now? And, and this goes back to, to what you're saying is, we make trouble for ourselves. And I think we make trouble for ourselves because the alternative is just too boring. I just got goosebumps. That's crazy. Because I have long thought about that in this way. Do we create or manifest problems because our life today is too easy? Have we overcrafted our reality such that we now have to manufacture suffering to just have meaning? Good question. And there's some data on this. So you, you look around the world and you ask people, how happy are you? And what you find is well-known findings is the countries where people are happiest are rich countries where high levels of personal safety, good, vibrant economies, um, you know, democracies and so it's you know the, the norways the sweden's australia new zealand canada those kind of countries and those are the happiest countries but some years ago gallup asked a question they never asked before which is to ask how much meaning do you have in your life and the results were startling well for happiness there's a positive correlation with how rich the country is for meaning there's a negative correlation which is that the countries that had the least meaning were the richest and most prosperous while the countries that were poorer had the most meaning on average. Now, it's not clear why this is so. One answer is what you're saying, which is as life gets easier and easier, we just fall into pleasure and we lose meaningful pursuits. Maybe the day-to-day -day struggle to survive in a very difficult environment gives rise to meaning. Maybe people in poor countries are more religious and that's associated with meaning. People in poor countries have more children and that's associated meaning, it's hard to disentangle. But there's some sense in which the seeking out of trouble is what you would expect in a society where we might have sort of um, have less trouble than other people. But having said that, so that's sort of argument one, having said that on the flip side, the sort of painful activities, masochistic pleasures show up all around the world. And mm -hmm. they're not any more common in the affluent West than they are in other parts of the world. You go, to, you, go to parts, you go to parts of Africa or Asia, which are very poor, and people engage in, in very violent, uh, painful activities and rituals. They enjoy movies and TV shows that are painful and violent. They seem to have the same. It seems to be a universal appetite. How much did you uncover or how much were you interested in this idea that we bring often physical pain, but any type of pain upon us just to spice it up? just to get out of, I don't know, the monotony. It's been long enough as an adult where I've realized every time things are calm, it's always followed by some kind of crisis. And when I finally stood back and looked at what those crises were, nine out of 10 times they were self-inflicted. And that's where I got to the point where I just don't want calm. So I'm curious of like, is, is it just we get bored and we're not meant for, for that level of just survive. I think that's true. I think that that it's true on many levels. Sometimes we seek out a painful activity just because we're bored. Um, it, it, simple as that. There's a really nice study um, I talk about where they get people to go into a room and they first show them a painful electric shock machine. And they, um, they shock them with it. They give a little shock and people say, it hurts like hell. And they say, they say keep that thing away from me. You know, I, I don't want to be in it. Okay, fine. Don't, you don't have to. They put them in a room, they take away their cell phones 
He said, there's one rule. You got to sit in a room for 20 minutes and you can't go to sleep. People hate us. They sit in a room, you know, 30 seconds go by and they're crawling under their skin. And then what they do, way more men than women, what they do is they go to the shock machine, which is in the room, and they give themselves painful electric shocks because yes. they're bored. You know, I'm bored. I'm going to poke a knife through my cheek, you know, because I'm bored. Yeah. And that's crazy. Um, but I think a more respectable way of thinking about it doesn't go down to that sort of low level stuff, but thinks in terms of, of a life where, you know, take a family with no kids. They may decide they want children because they believe it would give their life something that their life currently lacks. And you could call that boredom, but in some way, I think it's, it's something a bit deeper. It's questing. For, it's, it's a quest for what's missing. I'll never forget from an early age, my dad always used to say, you know, you need the pain to be able to really appreciate the pleasure. And I remember up until about early 20s, I hated that phrase and I vehemently opposed it. And I always pushed against it. I'd say, I don't think that's true. You could remove all the suffering from my life and I would be just as happy. And then I experienced for one of the first times in my life, what to me seemed like pretty hard suffering. And then I said, he's, he's right. You're right. Only something an adult, a grown adult would know when you've been through enough. What do you think about that? Do you think it's true that we need the opposites to appreciate both? I think we do. I think we do because so much of what's pleasurable and fun, and we're just talking now, we're not talking about meaning, we're talking about sheer pleasure. So much of what's pleasurable is defined in terms of contrast. So, you know, if somebody asked you, how you doing? The only reasonable answer is compared to what? If, if, you, um, if you're in the same the same temperature pool, eating the same food, pretty soon you stop experiencing it. This is a very physical thing. There's air conditioner in the background. You don't hear it anymore. There's a funny smell coming in your kitchen. You don't notice it anymore. If you just get used to stuff. And so it's, it's contrast that, that becomes super important. And so there's study after study, for instance, that finds that what you feel as pleasurable or painful and experience on the skin or winning or losing money in a game depends on what you were expecting. If you were expecting to lose 10 in the game and you lose one, you're going, yay. Well, if you're expecting to win five and you lose one, you're bummed. And it's very much relative either to the world as it is or to expectations about the world. And for me, the best illustration of the sort of contour of pleasure comes from movies. And actually comes from like revenge films. You ever see uh, John Wick? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. So no spoiler here, classic plot line, yeah. which is beginning of the movie is very sad. And then he meets up with some Russian mobsters and they kill his dog. It's very sad. And that's like the first third of the movie. Next two thirds of the movie, John Wick kills everybody. And yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> and and, and if, if you're a really dumb movie guy, you say, hey, here's an idea. Remember that really sad one third of the movie where they kill his dog? Let's take that away. It bums people out. Just throw the rest of it. But that's a dumb idea because you're, the, 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 the revenge only feels good because of its contrast with what happened before. I'm taking John Wick, but there's a little engine that could where the first part of it, he struggles, he struggles, he struggles, then he succeeds. The success is only sweet in light of the prior suffering. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Ginger. The North Star for every employer, manager, and HR professional is to create a supportive culture where employees are empowered to reach their full potential. Now more than ever, that objective starts with Ginger, a comprehensive mental health system for employees. Listen, to have a productive workforce, it is absolutely important that your employee's mental health is taken care of. Ginger is reinventing mental health care to provide immediate and on-demand personalized support for your employees. Here's how it works. Ginger brings immediate, high-quality mental health support right from a smartphone. With Ginger, members can connect with behavioral health coaches via text 24-7. Your employees having on-demand access to mental health support via an app is absolutely revolutionary, and the Ginger app makes that possible. Employees can get help with setting and working towards goals around anxiety, sleep, relationships, stress, and more. For more in-depth care, Ginger offers video therapy and psychiatry. Coaches, therapists, and psychiatrists work together to ensure each Ginger member gets seamless care tailored to their lives. 
Nearly 25 million people around the world have access to the Ginger on-demand mental health system. Sign up your team today. To learn more about how Ginger can support your employees' mental health, visit ginger.com smart. That's ginger.com smart. And now back to the episode. That's a great analogy. Do you think it's true that people who never have to work, given a trust fund, born to rich, wealthy, famous, all of this, essentially that silver spoon mentality, struggle more in life because they lack the meaning that comes from struggle, that comes from purpose. And so they're experiencing it later on due to the, the lack of experiencing it early. It's a really interesting issue. And my views on this might surprise you because a lot of my book is a defense of suffering and how important suffering is, pleasure, meaning. But I'm, it's, I'm all about the chosen suffering. These are all cases of chosen suffering that we're talking about up to now. To some extent, you're talking about unchosen suffering. And you're asking right now, does bad stuff that happens to you in some way strengthen you and build up your resilience later on? And there's sort of a couple of answers to this. One answer is there's a little bit of evidence that it does, that you're right. There's some studies done, for instance, where they give people like a 32-item inventory. It's the most saddest thing you could see, which is it's basically each item is a bad thing. Has your house ever burned down? Have you ever been sexually assaulted? Have you ever lost somebody you love to murder or whatever? Most, and, you know, and some people score really high. And it's, it tears you up to think about this. Some people score like zero. No, 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 nothing like that. No. And then they give them pain tolerance studies. And it turns out there's um, uh, an inverted U-shaped curve where the people in the middle have the highest pain tolerance. The people in the extremes don't. And maybe if you had so much torment through life, you could be kind of broken. Well, if you had no torment at all, you're unprepared for it. And that's one reading of it. So it fits with what you're saying. I guess I would add one other thing, though, which is that even if you're in a life of privilege, life still has struggles for you. Yeah. You, you could still be humiliated. You could still, still have people disappointing you. You could still miss out on love. I'm not saying it's all the same. I think there's something objectively worse about being poor and not being able to, you know, to cure an untreated infection versus being very rich and your father doesn't love you. But if you're very rich and your father doesn't love you, it still hurts. There's nobody who makes it through life unscathed. That was the thing that hit me. That's what actually hooked me. And I think good books do this great. But right off the bat, I think it was the first sentence you talk about that. You can't go through life unscathed. And one of the things you talk about is um, back pain. And I realized thinking like, man, if that's the pinnacle of old age, but it's true, you can't make it out regardless. And something I learned early on is like, not everybody's pain needs to seem equal or, or, or be compared. It's incomparable. It's the experience of that pain that gives it its meaning. I was having a conversation with somebody, I won't name the actor um, in case he listens, but, um, <laughs> but um, this person had read that the actor had been treated for depression. And she was astonished and she said, she said correctly, but he's so handsome and so rich. And honestly, that was kind of what I was feeling too. Like, yeah. like, what does this guy have to be depressed about? But, you know, of course it's a narrow view. Yes, you know, people, people go through all sorts of terrible stuff. And, and often because people possess gifts or good fortune that you don't have, you think, wow, I'd love to be them, but you don't, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know someone's pain. Well, I'm going to get into some specifics here because, uh, again, you talk about so many. The first place I want to start is the idea of happiness in general. Sometimes I find it to be pointless. You ever think, like, why focus on it so much? Why? What is the point of that in the first place? Meaning, I think, for me, I can wrap my mind around more. But happiness, and then when you go a step further, pleasure. Did you ever just look into, like, why does it matter in the first place? It's funny because you're writing a book, you talk to people. And you get two kinds of responses. And one kind of response is, is, is yours. You say, like, man, why, why would you care about pleasure? And the other type of response, I have some friends who are eating and says, why would you care about anything but pleasure? You know, oh, you say it's rewarding to do such and so, but all you mean is you get a buzz out of it. It's, it's, you like to pretend, I have a friend of mine who will say, you like to pretend that 
walking an old lady across the street or learning a new language is, is, uh, is something so different from good sex or, or good ice cream or whatever. It's right. just the same. So in my view, is sort of in between. I think in some way, there's something about pleasure that's indisputably good. It's a really hot day and you're really thirsty and you drink down some cool iced tea and it feels great. And I say, well, why did you do that? He said, it feels great. And I say, yeah, okay, but no, but, but, but really, why did you do that? You're going to look at me and say, it feels great. There's no other, you know, if you, if you don't get that, you don't get anything. But in the end, I'm sympathetic to you. I think that a life just focused on pleasure and happiness is kind of not, it's not a full life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's many ways to make the argument, but one of the things, so we're talking a lot of ideas and everything, but there's some psychological experiments here. And one of the experimental findings is the hedonist in some ways mistaken on his own grounds. And what I mean by this is that um, if you take people who pursue happiness, they, they'll tell you, they'll say, happiness is super important to me. I really value it. They tend to be not very happy. So sort of paradoxically, even if you care about happiness, you shouldn't be going after it too quickly. Why is that? Do you know? What does huh. the, the science say about that? I've heard that, and it's terrifying. Yes. Um, there's, there's, there's not one, but there's three possible answers to this. One answer is that, um, that simply focusing on certain things makes you bad at them. Like just thinking a lot about how good you are at kissing probably makes you bad at kissing. And so, so someone who's saying, I'm going to be happy today is this, it's not the right way. It's not a successful way to go about it. Um, a second, a second possibility is, uh, is that people who are focused on happiness think too much about happiness and end up doing a lot of social comparison. They're constantly looking at the next person saying, am I happier than him? Or, I think, I think an answer, and this, this answer is some support, a third answer, consistent with the rest is, that there's not, maybe there's nothing inherently wrong about trying to be happy. It's just that people try to go about it in the wrong way. So it's true money is correlated with happiness. Rich people are happier than poor people. No, no surprise. Money buys all sorts of things that can make you happy, including, you know, good health and freedom for predate, from predation and so on. <laughs> but trying to make money is a happiness. And Maybe status makes you happy, but trying to achieve status is a happiness. Mm -hmm. And one reason to believe this is cross-cultural studies. So it's true in the United States, and I think maybe Canada and Europe, that trying to be happy makes you less happy. There's correlation. It may not be true in other countries, like countries in Asia, because maybe there when people try to be happy, they say, I'm going to hang out with my friends more, which really does. It is really is a good way of making it being happy. That makes sense. Because I did have written down, I wanted to ask you about the World Happiness Report. You mentioned that the U.S. ranking is 18, which you might think 18 out of whatever, 156 or whatever it is, is great. But when you look at it in terms of wealth and all of that, it's abysmal, frankly. Uh, what does that report tell us about societal happiness as well as what does that tell us about how we get it wrong in the U.S.? Yeah, Americans punch below their weight for America punches below its weight for happiness. You'd expect, given our GDP, given our relative wealth, we'd be a happier country. And um, nobody really knows why we have, um, we, we have a high rate of suicides. Um, interestingly, though, it has not gone up through COVID, a interesting question, but we have a high rate of suicides um, due, to, due in large part to the availability of guns. Um, I think when people worry about guns, they always think about murder. But actually, for me, the real awful thing about guns is if you have a gun in a house and you have a sudden suicidal impulse, that's where you get our high suicide rate. Mm -hmm. um, there's what, what Angus Deaton uh, is called deaths of despair, where there's a sort of chunk of Americans, white guys, um, maybe like over 50, who um, who just because of economic forces are just feel locked out of the world. There's a high rate of opiate, opioid addiction for them, alcoholism. Um, a lot of deaths uh, due to drugs and alcohol could often be classified as suicides. In the, and so there's things in, in being vague here, because I don't know the answer, mm -hmm. but there's things that seem to be in the structure of the American experience that seems to strip us of our happiness, mm -hmm. despite our wealth.
when I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just to go back to one yeah, thing, which is, which is, for instance, there's a lot of data finding that non-parents that are more happy than parents, but this tends to be American data. And when you do look at other countries, the data flips and there's other countries where parents are happier than non-parents. And this is predicted at least in part by childcare policies. So it's very expensive to have a kid wherever you are. There's some countries that really help out. Mm. Um, I have friends of mine in Montreal and they have their kids in daycare and it's $10 a day, you know, and, <laughs> and, you know, when I, when I lived in, in New Haven, Connecticut, putting my kids through daycare and school costs kind of the same amount as going, putting them through a, a, an Ivy league university it's college for sure. Yeah. When we relate it to other cultures, if the human experience is the same because we're humans, so it's like biologically, physiologically the same, then why could the same experience in two different geographic locations cause different emotions from it, different outcomes. But then what you alluded to is, well, oftentimes it's based on what that experience leads to in a culture. So it's just so nuanced, it's hard to nail down. That's right. And I think that that's, that's a nice way of putting uh, the interplay between evolution. Because I, I think I'm, I'm very much of an evolutionary psychologist. I think our appetites have been wired up through natural selection in, in really powerful and clear and often very specific ways. It's why we have sexual desires that are very sort of circumscribed and kind of predictable, why we have, why we like the foods we eat, why, we, why status and respect and love are important for us, why aggression is often an essence and so on. But, but then you, but, but we also live in cultures and the cultures manifest these things in very different ways. Um, sometimes it's just banal and obvious that, you know, if you're in Korea, you might be eating a lot of kimchi. If you're in Manhattan, you might eat a lot of, you know, hot dogs. Yeah, so it's just it's just the culture tells you this food versus that food. There's some variance in our in our behavior, and sometimes it's more complicated. Like we all want status, but what status is in a hunter gatherer society versus uh, an academic university department versus a baseball team is very different. You know, in some societies, you know, I uh, I have my my graduate students call me by my first name. You know, and in fact, for them not to would be would, would make me look. Hmm. But there's other countries where students, you know, do not call their professor. World's simplest example. Um, in some countries, um, for you to stand close to a person is t either totally normal or incredibly rude and unpleasant. You have these parameters of variation. And for what I'm interested in, suffering and the use of suffering for pleasure and, and for meaning, you see these variations. Well, that's an awesome transition because I want to spend the rest, you know, the next 20 or so minutes talking about this idea of suffering because we spent a lot of time talking about happiness and meaning, but suffering, that's the unique twist here. What do you want people who read your book to understand about suffering? If I could get people who read my book to understand, to, to take seriously one argument or not, it goes like this. Um, it falls under what's been called motivational. The right theory of people isn't going to be we want and then there's a one word pleasure meaning morality truth beauty transcendence rather we want a whole lot of things so that's part one and then the second part is suffering is an integral part of me and so i would then try to persuade a lot of pleasures are sweetened by suffering you know, uh you know you think of extreme examples like bdsm and, um, but, there are, but there are other examples, you know, other more basic examples, sort of spicy food, hot sauna examples. But then finally, more to the point, it's not just suffering we want, we want meaning, purpose, significance, and you can have that without suffering. It's not like we want, it's not like when, when you choose to have kids, you say, man, I hope there's a lot of suffering involved. <laughs> you know, that's crazy. You hope, you probably hope it's going to be wonderful. Who wouldn't? But if it wasn't difficult, it wouldn't be important. That's in some way, that's in some way the very human bind we find ourselves into. You know, there's a, ma a marathon's coming up and I want to train for it. And on the one hand, I love to train to be pleasant and easy and I don't have blisters and I don't ache and I don't want to give up. But on the other hand, if it was easy, it wouldn't be worthwhile in the end. I won't remember. How much of that do you think is because of an innate biological evolutionary human drive 
to accomplish? That may be. This is the second or third question you've asked me that I have to say, I don't know. Yeah, I so mean, I'm not expecting you to have every answer. I'm, that's why I'm talking it through with so, you. <laughs> I mean, here's one way to answer the question, which is, you know, evolutionary theory, and as well as symbols or common sense says, you know, wherever we are, hunter-gatherer societies, there'll be certain things we want, appetites. We'll want to eat, we'll want to drink. We're going to want to have sex at a certain point because we will have to reproduce. We want to take care of our kids because we have to reproduce. The kids have to live long enough to, to survive. We form alliances, friendships, romantic relationships. We have to hunt. We have to work as a team. A long list of things. Is there in the mind of a hunter-gatherer sort of an appetite for... I want a sort of a long, fulfilling, meaningful project. Or do they just live day to day, sort of scratching these itches? It's possible that, that the meaning part of my book, not so much the pleasure part, the meaning part of my book, um, explores sort of a human discovery. That, that the appetite for meaningful experiences isn't something hardwired within us. I honestly don't know. I mean, I'm not going to study hunter-gatherers, but I do study young children. And it's a good question to ask to see whether you see that appetite in two and three-year-olds in some way. And you do in, in some things, in some things that are related, like this, this kids like to construct things. Mm -hmm. They like to make art. And maybe that reflects what you're talking about, a desire yeah. for something, something difficult. Hey, everyone, Chris here. And I want to take a minute for our sponsor this week, Organifi. Now, the one thing you might be asking is, why is Chris doing the read? Because honestly, John almost always does these. When Organifi decided to sponsor the show and I got their product, I tried it and I was genuinely shocked. I actually called John and said, hey, let me do the ad read for this one because it's incredible. And here's why. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high quality ingredients and less than three grams of sugar. So my two favorites are their green juice blend and their gold blend. The green juice blend is best with cold, you know, just mix it with cold water. It has all types of good stuff. It has ashwagandha, which if you're not familiar, it's a adaptogen that can help with stress, weight management, etc. It has moringa, matcha, chlorella, spirulina, it has all this good stuff, but what's even crazier is it's delicious. Like my biggest problem with a lot of these products is they taste like they're healthy. This stuff is awesome. And the gold, oh man, you put it in hot water, like a tea. It has turmeric, ginger, lemon balm, reishi mushroom, turkey tail mushroom. Again, made of health, but like better than all the teas I have on a nightly basis. So treat yourself to amazing health and try it today for 20% off your entire purchase. Go to www.organifi.com slash smart. Again, organifi.com slash smart. Get 20% off. And when you love it, shoot me an email and tell me I was right. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I've always wondered that, just the, the want to be focused on an outcome. I mean, I know a lot of people, myself included, I'll go build something, do woodworking, or a lot of people do it in gardening, just to want to see the fruits of our labor. And, and to your point, if it was easy, in which you knew it was going to be perfect and successful before trying, why try at all? These are correlated. In some reason, it's as if suffering is an indicator of how significant something is. That's, to me, a million-dollar question. Why does it have to be that way? Do you think there's some natural law to that in some way there's a natural law to that which is um creating anything as a battle against entropy and so it takes energy and difficulty to create something that has sort of complex form and complex structure it doesn't take much to take a beautiful sandcastle and smash it down to turn complexity into nothing but to create a beautiful sandcastle because it's so improbable requires work and requires struggle. That's all. You know what? The improbability of it occurring without your unique inputs. That's cool. That's really cool. I love that. I'm going to cling on to that. Given all of the things, like you said, the entropy that exists, I was able to harness it based on what's available or what's not even available yet to put something new out there. And you know, your, your question raises a hypothesis. So 
it seems for clear cases, um, this correlation is, you know, I'm more impressed if I run a marathon, if, if I, by running a marathon, if I had to work for it and suffer through it, and if it just came naturally, I mean, it's more of a thing, but I don't know whether this is an exception or this fits in. Take a 10 year marriage and you ask people, how significant is this relationship? Is it really true that their answer would correspond to the difficulties they had in their marriage? Do you love your partner more ultimately when you go through more stuff with them? Do you love your kids more if there were difficulties and struggles? I honestly don't know. So I was debating whether to run this by you or not, but it relates to this. One of the things I found I naturally started doing when my son was born is it'd be 3 a.m. I'd be furious that he's up crying. I mean, I'm talking when he was super young. He, he cried a lot because he had that colic or whatever. I mean, completely sleep deprived. And I remember the first time this happened, I sat there and I like, it, it, I, get, I get emotional thinking about it. I imagined something, what if something horrible happened to him? And uh, in a millisecond, the entire experience transformed. It, was, it went from this really burdensome, you know, oh, I got to be up for work to like, I still remember pitch black, complete silence in the house, rocking him and being grateful for it. And that was triggering suffering. And then that suffering leading to far greater me meaning. And that is all a mental exercise. What is that all about? That's a wonderful example. And it illustrates how much of what goes on is a matter of framing, is a matter of how you think about it. Um, there's some quote by Seneca, and I'm going to mangle it, but that, but the main idea is that, is that you know, you can take suffering now and just endure it. And this is now maybe unchosen suffering, your kid middle of the night with colic. Um, but sometimes for both chosen suffering and unchosen suffering, you could turn it into a narrative. And then you could, you could, um, you could kind of plan to dine out on it later. I, I talked to this guy who, um, who, who was, uh, you know, very stoned, uh, was young when he was young and there was a, a seal on a beach and he thought somebody thought a seal was like, a, and then, um, and then so he reached to pet the seal and the seal bit off most. And as this was happening, my friend high on ecstasy, um, <laughs> said to himself, this is going to make and, and, you know, um, to some extent, to some extent, you're, you're a hike in the Colorado mountains. We were talking about this before. Yep. Yep. Um, miserable. And while you're having it, probably at every point, if there was a button to press that would plop you down into a hotel room with air conditioning and a cool shower, you do it. But, but you, you struggle your way through it. And then you look back on it and it's the kind of person you want to be. I know you talked about in your book how fast we adapt to things. One day... You can get something and you think it's the best thing ever. And three days later, what was a luxury now is a necessity. And I think sometimes suffering can shake us out of that. I mean, it's what psychologists call the hedonic treadmill, mm. where, you know, you, you keep running as fast as you can and, and, um, and you stay still. And, and, you know, you could see that. You, you could see you win a prize, an award of some sort. This is great. You know, a month later, you're not feeling the same. Wow, this is great. You, you know, you, you get you get bored. Um, a lot of people who have had some professional success find that what really used to, to tickle them um, was um, becomes, you know, less pleasant later on. Someone who's like, who's famous, you know, early in their careers, a stranger giving them a compliment was a big, big thing, you know, and now you're Brad Pitt. And, you know, it's not such a big thing anymore. <laughs> kind of, you know, you don't even notice it anymore. And that's the problem. And so, so people respond to this in different ways. There's, this, there's a book I have, actually, crazy book, where this guy <laughs> describes the hedonic treadmill. And he says, the trick is you keep running faster and faster. You know, you're bored of your wife, get a new one. You know, you're bored of this, you know, you know get two. And, and, and I think the guy was going through some sort of issue, but, right. but, in the end, you cannot run the outrun the hedonic treadmill. You will just you will run out of new. Mm. <clears throat> I think the solution is to get off. I think the solution is to say, well, you know, I'm not going to seek endless pleasures. I'm going to seek other things, think valuable goods. A good long friendship and a good long romance and having kids are long sustained relationships that lack the friendship by definition, but also almost by definition, they are, they give you valuable things you couldn't get 
from sudden suddenly new thing something something through sustained experience Dave. it's like the and stoics so, had it right the stoic <laughs> the stoics do have it have it quite a bit right and so do the buddhists um yeah. a lot of religious traditions are basically sort of theories of hedonic you know so and the buddhists they don't even don't even start walking you know you right. know, you're just going to get suffering understand that's part of the business understand that that's life and then try to have the right attitude towards it when you talk about suffering and you talk about buddhists and talk about that i can't remember who it was but they said you know the best way i describe life is it's a series of loss so from the moment you're born all you do is lose things and that feels really heavy difficult negative but i don't know if i can refute it so sometimes i tend to think well if that's the case Okay, it's loss in terms of because it's finite is the only reason it matters. What I love about your book and, and kind of bringing it back to this is too often I think that suffering and those difficulties, and myself included, have a negative connotation. Suffering is the opposite of happiness. Pain is the opposite of pleasure. But what your book opened my eyes to and how you've talked through it is it is the prerequisite or at a minimum, the necessary ingredient to it. And if you can take that stance, perhaps you can change the lens you you experience it through. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And I mean, one thing building on what you said before, some people argue, and I think it's right, that if we didn't have an expiration date, if there wasn't such a thing as aging and death, it would be hard to find meaning in life. It would be, it, if, if you have an infinite amount of do over, it just, it, it things lose their urgency and their interest. Um, so somewhat paradoxically, you know, the things that make life in some ways the most terrible also make it the best. If you could talk a little bit about benign masochism, because when I read that chapter, especially the part on like, why are babies so cute? You want to literally bite them. Uh, I found it fascinating. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, so benign masochism is a term thought up by my, uh, my favorite psychologist, Paul Rosen. And it, it refers to our appetite for certain low levels of pain. So it's not pain for some other sake. If you're up three in the morning with your kid, that sounds pretty miserable, but that's not benign masochism because you're doing it because you want your kid to live. That's, you just have to do it. You know, if I go to a doctor's office, take some painful shots, that's not, I'm not enjoying the shots just because I got to do because I want to be healthy. Benign masochism is the pain for the pain itself. It's also, he, he's careful to say, um, not, not heavy duty. So, um, so, you know, there's all these gruesome things where people mutilate themselves or um, there's, a, there's a world sauna competition where two men died because the teeth, they, they roasted in the saunas. Oh. That's not benign masochism. Benign masochism the little things. And I think, I think you, there, there's no shortage of examples. Um, if you have a sprained ankle, you might press on it a bit. A sore tooth, you might poke it with your tongue. Somebody says to you, want to see something disgusting? A lot of us will say, yeah, I do. <laughs> you know? And, and, then, and then also, you know, you say, here's a movie. It's really gross. Yeah, it's very gross. Very, and you say, yeah, I want to see it. And, you know, it used to be thought that people who enjoyed frightening movies didn't feel the fear. It's nonsense. They feel the fear just as much as people hate frightening movies. It just doesn't bother them that much. Um, or let me put it this way. Um, it, it bothered, I didn't put it right. It bothers them, but they like being bothered by it. So benign masochism here opens up the fact that often we enjoy pain, struggle, we seek it out, um, because it scratches certain itches. It, sometimes it's contrast. Sometimes it's social signaling. Look how tough I am. Sometimes we haven't discussed, we you sort of, you sort of mentioned this. It, it's escape from the self where this is, um, this is one theory of BDSM, also of rigorous exercises, which is that when you're engaged in them, you're no longer thinking about yourself. For a lot of us, consciousness weighs heavily. You know, I'm here, I'm thinking about my, my voice as I'm saying it. I'm thinking of how I look on the screen. I'm thinking of how you look. I'm thinking of how you think of me. I'm thinking about the things I did yesterday, which I should regret, what I have to do tomorrow. And there's so much freaking me in that. But under the right circumstances, all of that can go. 
Um, it doesn't have to be masochism. The first time I ever did uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and sparred with a guy, afterwards, wow, while that was happening, I was thinking of, and, and, and those situations, we both mentioned our love of the book Flow. I was just um, thinking that. And, yep. and, and we, we really like to get into situations where you think about nothing else. I love what you're saying there about the mental impact of pain, but as much as just struggle, that is, I think, one of the things that most clearly makes sense to me, right, is we're in our head so much. I had a friend of mine said, you know, the reason we're hardest on ourselves is because we're the only ones who live with ourselves 24-7. We're privy to the good, the bad, the ugly, the in-between. And so to get out of there, you can either do it maybe the healthy way of mindfulness, but the other way, which is probably easier to force, is through either pain or struggle. I, it actually made me wonder about the happiness report and talking about other countries and, and how sometimes you're, you're talking about um, meaning being higher and potentially poorer countries. I wonder if it's just simply because when you have to struggle for everything, you don't have time to worry about unnecessary worries or made up worries. There's definitely that sort of trade-off. I mean, and, and at least in our own experiences, sometimes struggle and pain um, take our minds a mundane concern, yep. you know? Um, and, and now this is again, why chosen versus unchosen is important. You know, if you got attacked by a bear while a bear was eating you, you probably wouldn't be thinking at all about Monday, but it's still a pretty bad idea to get attacked by a bear. <laughs> and so, so you, you, so unchosen suffering can often be the, the negatives could weigh out, weigh the positives, but going for a good hard run or playing squash or engaging in consensual sex of different sorts mm -hmm. can take your head away from things. And that's right. tremendously powerful. What could you recommend anybody listening who gets this, who understands what could they do differently to benefit from the research you put in this, you know, what changes to their lives might you recommend? So this isn't, a, you know, it's not a self-help book. It's an right. exploration into what we like and what we, but I think often I, as I wrote my book, I thought about the book and flow wasn't a self-help book either. Flow was this mm -hmm. book by about saying, look, there's a certain experience that people have. They call it a flow when you get engrossed in something, they're not bored. They're not anxious. They're just in the moment. And they, they lose everything, like a musician or an athlete or a writer. And when I read this book, it had a real effect on me. Because, and I, I knew I fell into flow state sometimes. I never knew this was the sort of thing that was important and good to have. And I said, wow. And I read his stories about these people who were constantly in flow, and I admired them and so on. And it opened up opportunity. And I'd like to think that the, the, the people whose ideas I discuss and the, research, the researchers I discuss open up possibilities for people. Well, I have to say, I think you accomplished it. And I think by listening to this conversation, most people would agree. I, if you can change perspective on things as impactful or as deeply ingrained in the human experience as suffering, pain, happiness, meaning, and give some context to think through it, that's a, that's a tall challenge. I think you did it. Again, the book is The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. Paul, we'll, as I said, we'll link to this. What else are you doing these days? You write in other places? You just, you going on the book tour or you, you know, are you digging deeper into this, uh, this idea? Well, you know, where can people learn more or uh, follow up on this with you? Um, I'm doing a few things. I'm doing stuff related to promotion of the book, including writing some other articles. I had a, um, today's uh, October 15th, and I had something published in the Wall Street Journal. That's a short excerpt of the book. Oh, nice. That, um, and so I've been doing stuff like that. I'm writing another book right now on, um, on psychology in general. It's okay. a general the story of psychology for, for anybody who's interested. I'm teaching classes. I'm doing research. Um, I can be found on Twitter. Um, but uh, Paul Bloom at Yale, but it's mostly dad jokes and retweeting my friends and shameless <laughs> self-promotion. So, hey, so that's what Twitter's for. Okay. Yes, I'll yes. be following you. Stu stupid polls and everything. So don't, <laughs> don't get your hopes up. Um, I, I had to ask you, do you find book writing to be suffering at all? Because I imagine it to be, and that's why I keep putting it off. 
That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I, I, here's how I write books. I try to write an hour each day when I wake up. You do that in a year and a half, two years. You, mm. um, I find it so hard because I'd much rather go for a walk or go on Twitter or go on Facebook or answer my email or go back to sleep or mm. whatever. Um, but so it's hard. And honestly, it really, I, I, I'd be very lucky if it's flow. Plus I'm kind of struggling and keep checking my email and stuff like that. It is suffering. But I think it's exactly suffering, of the, which is it's suffering of the type, which is, you know, at every point I just find it miserable, but I'm very proud that I do it. And I feel good about myself. What a great way to end. Paul, again, thank you so much. The book is a sweet spot. Huge fan. Love it. Uh, and when the next book comes out, let's, let's reconnect. I'd love to well, learn definitely. more. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a, a very wide reaching discussion. That was Paul Bloom. Hope you enjoyed the interview. As a reminder, Paul's book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning can be found wherever books are sold. All right, jumping into the quick housekeeping items here. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you'd ever like to support the show, please head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. Or if you're looking for a free and easy way to support the show, just tell a friend or family member about the podcast and shoot them an episode or two that you think they'd like. And of course, if you're looking to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.